Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. We're continuing our series on liquid alts and alternative ETFs. And now we're going to talk about managed futures and hedge fund replication strategies in the ETF world. So returning to the show is Andrew Beer, who's co-founder at Dynamic Beta Investments, aka DBI. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. So in part one, we talked about factor-based hedge fund replication. We talked about the long-short equity ETF. Uh, But your other ETF that we want to talk about is is a managed futures ETF. Um, but, But just to step back a little bit. So our audience at the Alternative Investment Podcast, we have a lot of RIAs, family offices, high net worth investors. I'm sure that some of our listenership and viewership is already invested in managed futures. But I think even, I think there's still a lot of wealth managers out there who don't even really know much about managed futures. So could we kind of zoom out for a second, talk about just the utility of this asset class or this strategy and you know what it is and how it works? Sure. So so with respect to your point about uh, the, the the lack of investment in the space or lack of it, it's 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 actually quite incredible. I mean in the mutual fund world, the it managed futures mutual funds, and there are a lot of great managed futures mutual funds represent 10 basis points of the mutual fund world. Where we are in the ETF world, it's around two basis points of the overall world. Like these are these are strategies. I mean, I think it is again, I've become sort of this standard bearer for the for for, for managed futures, but but managed futures has more valuable diversification bang for the buck than any other alternative strategy, hands down. Wow. And, okay. and that's, a, that's and, a big statement. Well, I mean, it's it's you can look at the data for the past 22 years. Right, yeah. and and I, I want to. There's a distinction that that um, that needs to be made, and I'm writing a, a long white paper on this. There's a distinction when people talk about managed futures. What do they mean? Right. The only good data that we have is index on lots of hedge funds who pursued this strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you say when you when you're saying how would I have done if I'd invested in managed futures over the past 22 years, and I started 2000 because that's when the data gets good. Um, what you're really saying is, is what was the average performance of, say, the 20 largest managed futures hedge funds day in and day out over 22 years? And, and so it's a little bit like saying the S&P 500, but there are huge differences between that. Hedge funds are nettable fees and expenses. You can't actually invest in them unless you go and give or you're huge and you right. can give money to different guys. So it's, it's almost like a theoretical index of the space. Whereas the S&P 500, you've got a million different index products you can invest in it in, in, in you know, ETFs or mutual funds or however. So, so, but when you look at that data, and that's the best way to basically say, is this an interesting strategy? Right? Because you can always find one guy who's done incredibly well, 
Mm-hmm. But then you're going to miss all the other guys who were left on the battlefield. Show me the basically. median or show me what the, how the bulk of investors performed, right? Right. And so, so over that period of time, you have something that has zero correlation to stocks and bonds, generates three to 400 basis points per annum relative to stocks and bonds, and has hit the trifecta of big gains in the dot-com crisis, the GFC, and last year. So I, I I want to put a pit in that for a second and 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 um talk about your op-ed because oh. you just said brought that to mind. So by the way, this was published in Barron's, and I'm going to link to that op-ed in the show notes. And I have to say, uh, Barron's is like the only print publication in the financial world that I subscribe to. I've subscribed sure. to it for like 15 years. So good choice of publication uh it it was hard to get in that one i've been in i've been in i've been in some of the others that was they very very high standards but they were the editors were absolutely terrific on it well when when alts db when i get in in barons then i'll know that i'll have made it in in financial media so so congrats on getting this published it was a really good op-ed i'm going to link to it in the show notes uh but the quote that you just brought to mind was that managed futures uh they're like hurricane insurance that makes you money while you wait for the storm. And when I read that in Barron's, I like highlighted that and and I'm like, that almost sounds too good to be true. How could that be true? How could a how could how could hurricane insurance make me money while I wait for the storm? How could I have a zero correlation to equities <laughs> and and 300 basis points of return per year? So I think so, you know, in in the earlier podcast, we talked about the constraints that investor face investors face. Right. Sure. So, so think about in you know the big the big inflection point on inflation. I'll get just use, let's use a concrete example because you can academics and guys who do this and PhD with guys with PhDs and stuff can will give you papers that say over the past 120 years, you know, this idea of following trends or trend following and you know capturing trends through models would would have worked. I don't really care if something would have worked in the 1930s. It's kind of why I didn't go into academia. Um, the the but well, I, hey, we I at least got to defend like Ben Graham. I love the old Ben Graham investing books. So there are a couple. Things oh no, no, there, no, there. <laughs> I mean, his his books are. I mean, I almost. But you know, when I was at Harvard Business School, I almost did a did a, a study on uh, on short interest in the 1930s. Okay, and and they sent me into Baker Library to get the data, and I'm reading like dusty handwritten notes with like pencil scratches <laughs> and then they're asking me to put this into a statistical model and like and like and that i'm like that's i, I just why would you believe the output it's it's garbage yeah. in garbage out but 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 in any case the um uh but but i think the reality of men and shooters is so first of all what do these guys do right and and there's there's a lot of mystery around the space and and in part it's because the guys who are in the space are all quants and they talk about it in quant terms so if I'm a typical managed futures guy and you're interviewing me, I'm going to tell you about you know all of my new statistical techniques that I've introduced and why how I modify my model and my 37, you know, 57, 87 different markets that I trade in and long short this and different model links and everything. and you, you sound you hear it as a non-quant and for you think this guy must be doing 20% a year with no down years, right? Mm-hmm. And it just it sounds so great, but it's really hard to know the questions to ask. So. But so what we're trying to do at DBI is is create a language around the space that's a lot more accessible. And and one thing I'm working on right now, my Christmas you know, project was to try to write a white paper for advisors. 
that, that talks about this from a much more practical perspective. So let's talk about what the strategy is. So, and now, now to be clear, and, and by the way, like just mm-hmm. kudos for that white paper. I mean, that's a big part of what we're doing on this show, the alternative investment podcast. There are all kinds of alternatives products, not just liquid alts, all kinds of alts products. Advisors don't understand. Family offices don't understand. And and so a big part of this lift is, is just education. So kudos to you for that. But to be clear that, you know, what we're talking about now, are we talking about DBMF? the uh the dbi managed futures strategy etf completely yeah 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 so it's been, but it's but you, you got to start with managers and why you want to be in the best in the space right so okay. so sure the but what managers is is basically it's a whole bunch of funds out there run by incredibly smart guys like firms like aqr man ahl in london alpha simplex in boston i mean these are you know firms packed with phds who build computer models and the computer models are very, very sophisticated ways of almost applying technical analysis to find deciding whether something would go up or down. So you, you put Ben Graham on the show when you talk about managed futures, and his bias is going to tell you it doesn't work, right? You put a a University of Chicago trained economist who's an efficient market guy, and he'll tell you no, trend following doesn't work, but it does, right? And and the reason it works is because Sometimes when oil's going up, it, it'll go up a lot more than people expect. Sometimes when it's going down, it'll go down a lot more than people expect. And so what these guys do is build models that analyzes a lot of recent price data across commodities, rates, currencies, and equities. So they're all over the place. And what the models are basically trying to do is look at each of these individual markets and say, Poof, you know, are the market signals saying it's going to keep going up or keep going down? And if we think it's going to keep going up, we're going to we're going to we're going to basically buy futures contracts on it. And then if it's going down, we're going to sell futures contracts on it. So the it's it's but the output of what they do, right? So the space overall was up about twenty percent last year, right? Incredible, right? And it was up in the high single digits in in twenty twenty one, right? So there is almost no other strategy that nailed the inflation trade as much as managed futures. And so, but in concrete terms, what happens? How did they generate a decade of alpha in two years? And the answer is that, as we know, human beings were really, really late to the inflation trade. Right? That that the, it started in in January of 2021 when Stan Druckenmiller, this I mentioned this before, this macro investor, says, "Hey, I think inflation's coming back," and I wrote a note on it, basically saying, "Boy, if inflation's coming back, that's going to be great for this strategy." Because if rates go up a lot, guess who's going to be shorting treasuries and making money on the way up? If the dollar gets strong, guess who's going to be shorting the yen or shorting the euro? And and, and, and this trend kind of continues beyond what logical humans are are expecting. Is that is that kind of the idea? Well, it's it's, it's it's on both ends. One, people are slow to react. Yeah. So there's plenty of time for where you start to see not everybody, but a lot of people are slow to react, and then people pile in once the trade gets going. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get, now that doesn't always happen, right? In the 2010s, you know, it, things would start moving and then the Fed would say something or Trump would tweet something and the markets would reverse. It was kind of like a lot of, and these guys were getting whipsawed back and forth a lot. But in a period like this, where where things go and the, the yen goes from 115 to 151, that's an impossibly big move in, in FX land. 
you know, the the two-year treasury, in the beginning of this year, people thought the two-year treasury might hit 50 basis points and it goes to four and a half. Like it's, but but what happens is, is the, the reason the alpha is there at these particular times is because going back to this point about constraints, when I wrote that paper, I talked to RAs about it. And every single RA that I talked to was not taking any action. And why? Right. What am I supposed to do with my 60-40? Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and everyone had huge low rate bets. Yeah. Right. So you, you've got, you own the S&P 500. You're filled with FANG stocks whose valuations are dependent upon low rates. You've got high grade credit, you know, double A credit portfolio that's earning one and a half percent with an eight or 10 year maturity. Like, so then, and, and the playbook that people had for it was an old playbook. They said, well, we'll buy gold. If we're going to do anything, or we'll buy tips. Mm-hmm. Right. Gold was down. Tips is down, was down 12 or 13% last year. So wow. what happened was so so in there are a lot of really, really smart guys who, even if they wanted to change camps, because imagine that advisor who calls his clients and said, I just read this interview that this guy, you know, this great macro investor said, and he says inflation's coming back. We're selling everything and flipping our portfolio. Right. What if you're wrong? Right. We've all seen false positives. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's that it's that tension where we're trying to be rational and think about what the right bets are and the way to trades are. But you know, we've 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 communicated to our clients, to the world, kind of a, a particular view of of the world. And so what that does is it creates a lot of hope. It created the transitory arguments, the hope that it's not going to get as bad as we would like, that we all grew up in the 2010s where you did have these false positives and they never happened. So it's 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 so in in those periods, these trends kind of kick in. And and so so the strategy as a whole is really, really interesting in that it brings diversification because it acts the way we don't act. Right. I was trained by one of the great disciples of Benjamin Graham. Right. Something goes down, every fiber in my body thinks is it the right time to buy. You know, I, I also know I, I don't want to be the guy if something doubles, I'm never going to be the guy who steps in and buys it, even if it then doubles further from there. Um, so a lot of humans are kind of wired to assume that the world is gonna is gonna revert to some sort of a meme. That the price that we got to, even Kathy Wood, right? I mean, you can see kind of like all these heuristic biases. She says, well. You know, it used to trade at a thousand, and it's trading at a hundred now. So it's it's not even. And when I was trading at a thousand, I thought it was worth three thousand. So it's still worth three thousand. Like that's not the way the world works. Uh, but it's it's the way ninety nine or ninety percent of the people who invest and manage portfolios they're wired. They can't change quickly. Right. They've they, they're gonna they're gonna spend a long time defending it. And then what and, happened? And, and by, by the way, even if even if I might, that is the way I'm wired, and that's the way I want to invest. You can almost say, well, 80, 90% of my portfolio is going to be long only and, and looking for value with that sort of wiring, but you can still include that slice to a different strategy, right? To hedge sure. against the year that that doesn't work, like 2022. Right. And, 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 and hedging, look, diversification means different things for everybody, right? I mean, some right. people think it means, you know, no correlation, never moves or whatever. Look, cash has zero correlation to equities. Nobody considers it to be a, you know, like, Oh, it's generating alpha relative to equities, but it's but but the um but the um you know if you'd had a 10% allocation of managed futures last year, 
you would have saved 500 basis points on your drawdown. Okay. So what I've realized in talking to advisors, I've look, I've been super lucky since we launched this ETF three and a half years ago, in that a lot of advisors have been really patient, taking a lot of time with me to let me learn about their businesses and how they look at it. Because I'll get to the, I mean, I'll be 15 minutes left in a call and I'll be like, guys, tell me, what do you think about this? How does it fit in your business? Does it not? Um, and you know, what I realized was that if you have something last year, they call it a beacon of green and a sea of red. Mm-hmm. We have a chart that shows Manitouchers up 20% last year. Everything was down with the exception of, of, of commodities. So, you know, your yes, you went into value stocks. They were still down 8%. You stayed in growth stocks. They were down 29. You had REITs in your portfolio. They were down 25 or 27 or something. It's this is what happened in 2008. A lot of things that people thought were diversifiers all of a sudden go down. It happens to be the moment in time when managers tend to do the best. So, so it's this basic idea that there's a an, an economic value to diversification, but for advisors, and this is what I'm trying to write about, there's also value for them in the context of their business. So when you stop at that, right, every advisor will say, oh, I'm either going to have five, 10, or 20% of my portfolio in this thing. The problem is 10% of the people who've invested in this space are happy. Okay. So the great paradox of managed futures is this thing on paper that has all this diversification bang for the buck and really unhappy customers. Sure. And so, you know, our whole business, at least in the managed futures space, is trying to solve that. We've tried to create the product that actually lines up with advisors' want and need when they decide that they want the space. Because our argument is almost nothing else out there does. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not you know, yeah. it, it's interesting you mentioned that with managed futures and with this product because in in the non-traded REIT world and in some of these other spaces of alternative investments, there's a modern iteration of a particular product type that uh, might be leveraging technology or new innovation. And that is very different from a similar product or strategy from 20 years ago. But there's this uh, memory, you know, especially, and you, who can blame them, right? Or, who can who can blame an investor or an advisor who's been burned by non-traded REITs, uh, you know, of 25 years ago, or of a managed future strategy, you know, or product of you know 10, 15, 20 years ago, for having that question, you know, for the modern iteration of that product. But it, it sounds to me like the the hedge fund replication strategy. In, in how you've built this particular ETF, it is a, a new way to, to allocate to the space that potentially doesn't have some of those drawbacks from, from investors who may have been burned previously in the space. Absolutely. And, 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 and part of it is, so I, I'm, look, I, I was a history major by background, right? And, and my great-grandfather was great friends with this philosopher named George Santayana, who famously said, uh, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. You know, going back to your point, there is an institutional memory and you've got to understand why and what happened, right? So, so the manager space had a very, very sketchy reputation for a long time because in the 80s and 90s, and even into the early 2000s, there were products with a thousand basis point expense ratios. It was, Goodness. and some of the products would go up or down 20 or 30% a month. There were people who made, there were guys selling it to wealth management clients whose careers were made on the back of the commissions they were making on these on these products. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in, in 2013, Bloomberg wrote an article about this. And even then, there were 
funds at an 800-900 basis point expense ratios. And the title of the Bloomberg article was how clients, something like how clients give up 89% of their gains in futures funds or something. Um, the modern issue is more of the fact that um, the, the big development on the wealth management side, I think it's an enormously positive development is the growth of model portfolios, right? And, and 15 years ago, if, if I think there was much more of a mentality of, I'm going to stare at the little equity piece and see how that's doing. And I'm going to stare at this and like kind of stare at each of the components. I think, I think people have gotten much better at saying, if we want to take our clients and have them retire happy in 10 or 20 years, we've got to have an integrated approach with all these different asset classes working in tandem. So let's focus on the overall pie. This goes back to what I was saying, though, about when you build the asset allocation model and you want to fill a pie, you don't fill emerging markets with Alibaba and hope it works, right? You don't fill it with a single stock or you don't fill a, a going back to your point about, you know, you don't say, well, I don't need a private read. I'm just going to go uh, lend money to, you know, some you're, local guy. In you're a giving up your free lunch, right? You're giving up the only free lunch. You need diversification. Yeah. Right. And so, so what happened in, in, and thing you have to remember about managed futures funds is they weren't built for the retailer wealth management world. They were built for pension plans mm-hmm. and high net worth investors. And, but in particular, pension plans will never put all of their money with a single fund. Like from a diversification perspective, it's crazy to do that. Because all you need to do is look at 20 years of data in this. And we have these great charts that basically show, okay, these are all the stars at this point in time. And then over the next five years, they're all over the place. (laughs) Some some guy like can't do wrong for two years and then he craps out. And so what happened was they took that model and they brought it to the retail world. So in the mutual fund space, you've got great mutual funds that are run by Man AHL, Alpha Simplex, PIMCO, AQR. Um, uh, And these are huge institutional quality firms. The problem is you as an advisor should own all four of them. Because if you don't, what you end up doing is, and AQR is kind of the poster child for this, because AQR, people back in the early 2000s, AQR came out with a great product in 2010 or 2011. They basically said, we're bringing our best institutional quality thinking on managed futures. We're going to put into a mutual fund with 120 basis point expense ratio. It was a huge step in the right direction. Sure. Allocators got it wrong. And they said, I, I love this space. Look at how well it did in 2008. It did really well in, I think it was 2013, 2014. And, and they said, I'm just going to give it to AQR. And so AQR's mutual fund ballooned to 14 billion. 14 billion. Today, the largest mutual fund is still only 4 billion. That was like so far out. It was 40% or 50%, maybe 60% of the overall managed futures mutual fund space. And, and, so people just said, I want managed futures. Nobody's smarter than AQR. I'm just going to give them all my money in this space. And then over the next five years, AQR went down by 20%. And so what happened was, what do you do as an advisor? You know, it starts to underperform. Every quarter you're sitting there. Here's my pick. Here's the index. And, and, and you're constantly under the index for three or four years. The way to get out is you throw out the whole space. Some guys said... I'm going to get out of AQR, but I'm going to move into this fund that's been doing better. And then often that fund would, would then go through a tough period. But, but most RIAs are saying, I'm going to take this 5% allocation and we're going to round it down to zero and, and maybe allocate that. It's to the, and, and you blame it on the space. The space okay. is broken. 
Yeah. And and so what happened is that it, they lost 90% of the assets in that fund. And even as the industry was, recover, was recovering in 2021, they were still losing assets at AQR, but it was starting to go into the other guys. Okay. And so, so when an advisor looks at the managed futures mutual fund space, it looks easy because you've got five funds, four or five funds, multi-billion you know, dollar plus or multi-billion dollar funds that all look great, relatively speaking. Four of the five look great. The problem is you're looking at the survivors. There are eight or 10 other guys by perfectly credible funds who people just gave up and shut down the funds. So, so instead, so when people give money to one of these funds, they're taking far too much single manager risk. Mm-hmm. And, and the way uh, I've never seen a guy with a 5% allocation to space have five funds in it. It's too weird for them when you've got a single allocation for US large cap stocks, a single allocation for emerging markets, you know, you have like 15 line items and then one of them has five different funds in it. So this is where replication is ideal because we can take those five great guys, 15 other great guys that are all part of the kind of the, the upper tier of the hedge fund industry. And we have our own risk models. We don't do what they do. They try to figure out whether gold is going up or down or crude oil is going up or down. Instead, our risk models try to figure out, do they think gold is going up or down and by how much? Mm-hmm. And and so if it says they're short 8% gold because uh, they think it's going down, if our model says that, then we just simply short a gold futures contract. And and so so what you do in a sense is you get so, so I'm sorry to interrupt. So this is not indexed. It's it's is this an actively managed fund that is sort of mimicking an index? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's it's we're we're technically an actively managed ETF because there is there is no investable way of investing in there's there is no index in the managed future space. Um, sure. And so it, it's it's an approximation. But it's an approx. It's by far, and and the approximation has three benefits. So you get about an eighty-five percent correlation over time to to the index. So it's not perfect, but it's it's really close. Uh, the second is that it's really efficient. So using a relatively simple portfolio of futures contracts, we do about a hundred percent of what they get from, on a pre-fee basis. So if they make ten before fees and clients make five. And we get 10 before fees, but charge one, we tend to outperform by a lot over time. Wow. 400 basis points a year. Like those, now those are, kinds are of you kind of Are you kind of piggybacking off of their research? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. No, but right. I, I think the but but the thing 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 um in the third benefit is we can put it into an ETF. Right. right. Because liquidity. Well, because we only trade 10 really big, really obvious futures contracts. Things like the dollar versus the yen, the 10-year treasury, uh, the S&P 500. And like, like the hedge fund, like the long short hedge funds, these are the big moves that are res- are responsible for most of the alpha, most of the- Exactly, right? Ex- exactly. So, so, you know, the fund was up a lot last year. I mean, people, people can look at it, but basically it, it, it made money and <clears throat> we were long crude oil at the right time. We were short treasuries throughout pretty much all the year as rates were going up, and we were long the dollar versus things like the yen and and the euro at the right time. And you don't need, you know, whether these big hedge fund luminaries were long or short lumber futures contracts doesn't matter. 
in their, you know, it's in, in, in their overall P&L. And so, but, but the other thing is the reason we focus on the ETF space is none of these guys will go, I don't think we'll ever go into the ETF space because they're really big and you can see our positions every single day. You can pull it up off of the, the, the website. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a reason why Bill Ackman isn't going to launch an ETF. He doesn't want the world to know that he's selling one of his stocks because, you know, there are thousands of traders out there who would take that information and find ways to use it. And and if a ten billion or fifteen billion dollar managed futures hedge fund turns out has a big cocoa futures contract, or you know, looks like the people can infer that they own a lot of the cocoa market, guess who's going to get squeezed out of a position? Um, and so. Uh, so we focus on the ETF world because it's, it's really a greenfield opportunity. We've had a handful of competitors going back to, I think, you know, you've, we've been doing this a long time, but they're traditional asset management firms whose products have never really gained traction because they're not really managed futures funds. When you're talking about what you, where, where, where are those diversification benefits that I've talked about, um, where those diversification benefits reside? It's not in, it, it hasn't been in the current suite of ETF products. Got it. Wow. Really unique product. And, and again, that ticker, the managed future strategy ETF is DBMF. I'm going to make sure to link to that ticker in our show notes. It, it, Andrew, this has been just super educational for me. I mean, I, um, you know, part one of our interview talking about hedge funds, hedge fund replication strategies. And now in this episode, talking about managed futures, I mean, it, you know, we've already covered managed futures a little bit in the show, and I knew a little bit about them, but just a whole lot of nuance, um, a new nuance in your understanding, oh. and, you know, which is good, obviously, as being that you, uh, you know, are a sponsor and issuer of this this ETF, but just really appreciative of, of how open you are and you know sharing your knowledge with us. And and that being said, you've referenced that you're writing a, a white paper. Um, and, and I know the ETFs are also listed online. So where can our viewers and listeners go so they can, you know, get your new research as well as to learn more about the ETFs that we've discussed today? Sure. So, so, um, uh, first of all, I'm on, uh, LinkedIn. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's Andrew Beer. It's, it'd be pretty obvious. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, but less so, uh, it's at Andrew D Beer one on Twitter, uh, where I just, I comment on things pretty, pretty frequently. Um, uh, you know, our website is www.dynamicbeta.com. It's actually, the whole thing is being redone right now. So I hope that in a couple of months, we'll have something that looks really terrific. Um, but I think the big thing is going to be, uh, is is the white paper that I'm writing and some of the collateral material that follows the Barron's editorial is, is you know, I, I've been, I mean, I would just reiterate this. I've been really, really lucky with, um, uh, in that, you know, I realized that we came to the managed future space not as guys, we weren't quants who were saying like, how can we build a cool product that we can sell? Mm-hmm. It was, how do we solve a problem? And, and the problem was, I want those crazily valuable diversification benefits that I've described, but we identified some really, really big problems between getting from here and there. And, and fortunately, you know, we've, we kind of, it happened to line up with how we view the world, which I think in this case, for a lot of allocators, copying the big trades is a much safer long-term bet in a low-cost ETF than trying to figure out who's going to be the next star tomorrow. Um, and so, but a lot of what's going to, 
what has to turn it is back to your point about this institutional memory about bad experiences and creating a language around it that's less intimidating. Because I talk to the guys who run these funds and I don't understand what they do. I've been in the hedge fund industry for a very long time. I've done a lot of different things in the space. It's there, There's a disconnect between this insider language and most of the guys who are thinking about making the asset allocation decisions. And I've got to link, I've got to bring more people into the tent by, by, by asking the questions that they would ask uh, or ask the questions that I've already asked and then try to find a way to articulate it in a way so they get comfortable and, and, and understand how they can add this and why and how to talk to clients about it and where it fits in their portfolio and how to explain it in different regime situations and, and all those different things are just a critical component that I think the industry has largely been missing. Absolutely. So. And, and I think, uh, you know, again, your op-ed was very good. I'm going to link to that. Um, and, and hopefully we've reached a few wealth managers and some RIAs mm-hmm. and family offices with, with this episode. Uh, really exciting product. I mean, I, I started in the ETF world close to 15 years ago. So just to see how things have played out and the innovation that's still going on is just, is so inspiring. So Andrew, thanks again for coming on the show today. Andy, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.